Hello, everybody. It's Peter Ravella, co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host of the show. Part two of our best of 2019 podcast series, Tyler. That's right. Uh, Part one was not enough. We needed a little extra space. Uh, So here is part two of the American Shoreline Podcast best of 2019. Hope you all enjoy. Before we get into it, though, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Yep. Brought to you by Coastal Transplant. Steve Mercer and his team over in North Carolina, the best in coastal dune restoration. They grow the plants. They install them. They'll get it permitted. They're turnkey operation reach out to steve mercer and his team at coastaltransplants.com the next time you're looking for a provider for your dune restoration program all right professor fowler out let's uh, let's start here uh at the very beginning we're going to go back in time let's go back in time to uh the revolutionary war period the colonial period in america and I thought it would be great if, if you would just describe for us, for us what the uh, American shoreline would have looked like back then. Uh, where would the people have been? Uh, what, was, what were the colonies like uh, on the American shoreline? Well, Tyler, in the 18th century, at the time of the American Revolution, Americans were a sea-minded people. That is, it was the sea that had brought them to North America. It was the sea that was a moat that protected them from the tribulations of Europe. And it was the sea from which they gained their living, gained their living as fishermen and gained their living in trading. Uh, So the major American cities at the time, places like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, were all cities whose face set to the sea. While many Americans, in fact most of the population were rural, Nonetheless, the economy of the British North American colonies was very much dependent upon the ocean. And so everyone was familiar with that. Within 18th century America, there were probably somewhere in the order of 20,000 sailors. Now, that might not seem very large, but in the 18th century, sailors made up the single largest wage-earning group. That is, everyone else, um, many other people were farmers, but the largest wage-earning group was sailors. Wow. So they gave a real tone to America. And it was through these seaports that news from Europe arrived. It was through these seaports that American exports, the produce that we sent to the world, uh, some of that produce, of course, intimately related to the African slave trade, in which Americans were connected via rum, molasses, and slaves. So it was a vibrant maritime economy. The sea was absolutely at the heart of what America was, Hmm. the American colonies. It was also a fact of being part of the British Empire. The British Empire in the 18th century was the largest, most powerful empire in the world. And American merchantmen operated within that empire. They were protected by the might of the Royal Navy. But there was a downside, too. You know, in the 18th century, every once in a while, peace broke out, but not often. The empire was always at war with someone, whether it be the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, or the Dutch. didn't matter whom. War was always prevalent. And in wartime, American seafarers went to war for the empire. Hmm. Just as we had militia on shore, on the land, to protect our borders, So, too, we had American seamen going to defend and to attack the enemies of the empire. During wartime, 
American merchant owners would take their ships and they would go to the royal governor and ask for a commission to be a privateer, mm. which is to say to go out and to be able to hunt the enemies of the king, which they did. Sometimes they were successful. Oftentimes they were not. But the whole point of this is that by the eve of the American Revolution, we had a long tradition of battling at sea. We had a long tradition of seafaring. One-third all the ships in the British Empire had been built in the American colonies. So it's hardly a surprise then that when the war began, when the revolution began, just as we challenged the British on land, that we would also challenge the British at sea. Well, so a couple of things jumped out at me in that introduction, uh, that there were 20,000 sailors essentially in the American colonies, the largest yes. paid uh, in you know group i guess a profession in in the colonies that's an and one third of the british naval ships were being built in the americas so no, not naval ships one third of the british merchant merchant marine Did, so was our yeah. shipbuilding capacity and expertise in early america pretty well developed yes from the very beginning when the early colonists arrived in the early part of the 17th century uh, certainly up here in new england uh, they thought they were going to be farmers. Well, that didn't work out so well. The soil was very rocky. So they turned to the sea uh, for very good reason, the very rich fishing grounds. And once they realized the richness of the fishing grounds, then they began to build vessels. So almost from the very beginning of settlement, uh, American colonists were building vessels to go, to go seafaring, either go, to go fishing or to trade with Europe and trade with the West Indies. So shipbuilding was essential right at the very beginning. Uh, we sh should remember, too, that uh, wooden shipbuilding in the 17th and 18th century was not all that complicated. Hmm. And these were people who were experienced carpenters. They knew how to build homes. They knew how to hew timber. And so building a vessel wasn't a terribly difficult hmm. thing. And along the coastline, wherever you had rivers, that is deep water, and forests nearby, you had the, all the essentials for shipbuilding. So that the pine, the white oak, and then the rivers were along the shores. You could set up shipyards. It all worked very, very well. So shipbuilding was a thriving, thriving industry in colonial America. Hmm. So coming into the Civil War, as we at Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the colonies, you know, the colonists are, of course, we're fine with King George for a long time. Uh, we're going into this. This confrontation, uh, the British Navy at the time, the most powerful on the planet, wasn't it? And and as we went into that conflict, boy, that must have been a frightening prospect to, to stand up to what was at the time the superpower of the world. No question about that. Uh, at the time of the American Revolution, of course, the British had just recently defeated the French in the French and Indian War, and the Royal Navy stood at perhaps 800 to 1,000 ships. It was clearly the greatest naval power in the world. But, you know, we need to put this in a little bit of perspective. So, too, was the British Army a highly professional army. It wasn't the biggest in the world, but certainly it had managed to conquer and maintain an empire. And so the fact that Americans were willing to challenge the British at sea sort of matched our uh, chutzpah in challenging <laughs> the British on land as well. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a, a, a reach, I think, to challenge the British Navy, but we had no reason to think why we couldn't do mm. it. And those 20,000 seamen that I mentioned, they had a particular grievance against 
the Royal Navy, the issue of impressment that was often the case in the 18th century when merchant sailors would be impressed, that is, just taken off the streets and put in the Royal Navy. Uh, so American seamen had grudges against the Royal Navy. Mm. So I think perhaps the opportunity to, to strike against His Majesty's ships was rather attractive to some of these men. Interesting. And of course, now I'm not a historian, and uh, uh, but I do remember from uh, my early American history the story of the Boston Tea Party. So was the Revolutionary War essentially kicked off on a ship? Oh, that's a very good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. You're absolutely right. It was sort of kicked off on a ship. That is when we kicked off the tea from right, the ship. Right, right. Uh, so there it was in Boston Harbor. Yes, it was a, uh, I, I guess we could call it a maritime incident uh, that was sort of the spark that started the fire. Well, Radley, uh, when Peter and I were preparing for this show, I knew that I had one question I just had to ask you. And when you when you uh, title your conference, uh, at what point manage retreat? I just have to ask to kick this whole thing off. And of course, we're going to talk about uh, the origin of this question. But let me just ask you, at what point manage retreat? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great way to start, I think. Um, and I, I do feel I have to say that in, in putting together this conference, we struggled with a title um, for sure. So I think if it's OK with you, you know, let's maybe take a minute to unpack that phrase, at what point managed retreat? I think there's kind of the, at least three interesting parts there. Um, at what point? So that implies um, maybe a moment in time, maybe a particular location. Um, but of course, there's really going to be a gradient. Um, you know, when to retreat is going to depend on just how what, how extreme the climate hazard is in a place, uh, how vulnerable communities are, and the extent to which adaptation or resilience in place, things like seawalls or you know, natural uh, defenses, things like dunes, may be viable. So at what point is an interesting question. In reality, it's not going to be a binary for any one place, but it's going to be a gradient. And then, you know, towards those other words, managed retreat. Um, so retreat, certainly when people hear retreat, again, it's a binary. And I think for a lot of people, it makes them think of defeat, abandonment. So that is a control, controversial word, um, you know, for some communities, but I think I think an important one. And then managed also is you know meant to be very thought-provoking managed by whom uh this is something that individuals get to decide who decides um you know and, and in practice a lot of these decisions to move away end up being individuals um maybe spur of the moment it's not always you know managed in some sense so i think you rightly in your question have honed in um, on some difficult challenges that we were, you know, looking to, you know, start to kind of illuminate um, and unpack uh, in this conference. But my overall takeaway is that words are very important, right, and how we define these things matters. Well, it, it is a provocative question, and I think the way you just described it uh, introduces the, 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 the really the main threads of that decision, not only at what point is the scientific question, what is the status of mm -hmm. the shoreline? This is a dynamic place, the land-water yeah. interface. It's always in motion. So yeah. there's a point along the way here where perhaps the problem becomes so intolerable, uh, either by people's own 
uh, sense of risk, but maybe perhaps financial risk of insurers mm-hmm. or or financiers or investors or real estate investment trusts, that kind of thing. Uh, there's the science of it. There's the status of it. But the but the politics of it and the policy of it, the who manages and to to where. Uh, God, what I mean, I can't tell you. So you've got to give us an overview of this conference. It sounds like uh, exactly the kind of discussion that needs to be happening on the American shoreline. Uh, what give us the overview, the highlights? What surprised you about the weekend? Uh, the conference just wrapped up, by the way. It was uh, uh, July what nineteenth to the twenty first. So <clears throat> just this past weekend. Uh, tell us what what you came away with. Yeah, so um, it it really was a fascinating discussion. I mean, I think, you know, some of the takeaways for me were that, um, you know, these are still early days. I think what we were doing was a convening of a lot of the voices that need to be in the room as we think about these long-term decisions that are partly about climate and, you know, as you sort of alluded to in your earlier remarks, partly about more generally what kind of society do we all want? How do we all, you know, get to weigh in with our kind of perspective? But I do feel that we succeeded in getting in the room maybe a broader set of voices on this topic than have been there before. We had, you know, the climate scientists for sure, um, and not just coastal, actually. I should also note that while that was a theme, the coast was, we did also have presentations on things like fire risk in the West on around the world, how combinations of high temperatures and high humidity at the very same time uh, may for more and more populations, especially in places like the Persian Gulf, um, South Asia, present real challenges in terms of being able to just do basic sort of outdoor work and agriculture. But so so not just coastal climate hazards, but mm-hmm. getting back towards the heart of your question, uh, I think what was most exciting was the dialogues that went beyond the climate science. It was the lawyers in the room starting to right. you know, say, does existing law support or hinder um, this kind of thing? Wow. The real estate folks, uh, the insurance community, environmental justice, um, the yep. vulnerability mappers, you know, so it really was, um, you know, I think a broad discussion. And in terms of some of the takeaways, um, one of the biggest ones for me um, is this question of scale. Right. Because we heard, you know, validly over and over again, community representatives um, talking about how there can't be a one size fits all policy. You know, individual communities need to be able to decide what to do. We heard about the history of top down forces, you know, acting, quote unquote, for the greater good, imposing real uh, challenges on communities. And that's a valid perspective, a critical perspective. But at the same time, it's also true that, you know, we see with rising sea levels, with sort of poor, um, you know, exposing people to to risk in the coastline in the past, the scale of the challenge is so big and growing that, from my mind at least, it's going to be impossible to tackle unless we have some top-down mechanisms, unless we engage with some powerful institutions in society, right, whether it's, you know, you name it, zoning, insurance, you know, investment. Uh, And there's going to need to be some um, standardization of the process, given how many communities are are involved. So how do we meet? How do we? That's a paradox. And I don't, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer to how to satisfy both of those scales, other than just to say it's going to need to be a little bit of all of the above. So that, that was one of the takeaways. Another one, also you alluded to already, that 
the hazard piece, right? Like just how often an area is flooding, just how high the waters are going to get is long-term, you know, obviously maybe the central aspect here. But if you start to actually ask, you know, what's going to happen when, when are people going to decide to retreat? All those other human things you mentioned, um, maybe the tipping points there. When does risk perception change? When does the media start to talk more about this topic? When does a place just, you know, when, when, when's the year when we sort of somewhat randomly get perhaps get hit by those three, you know, big hurricanes, God forbid. And, you know, one of these sort of banks such as our flood insurance, um, you know, our ability to respond to emergencies, we sort of cross that bank in some sense and, and, and lose whatever storage capacity we have there. Things like that could lead to the tipping point in terms of real estate values, risk perception, and this sort of, you know, runaway unwinding for at least some places uh, actually before the water arrives, frankly. So I think that's a, a fascinating and really, really challenging part of this discussion. And I don't think anybody can say when that when that date happens and of course it's going to vary by place so kia uh thank you for being on the podcast yeah you're welcome i'm always happy to talk about hurricanes and the coast well it's such a complicated project 32 billion dollars is one of the cost estimates that's out there uh this is for the coastal barrier system as you're saying uh, for folks out there, uh, Bolivar Peninsula is essentially a barrier island at the at the entrance of the Houston uh, Galveston Ship Channel. That's yeah, to the north of Galveston. To, to north and this and Galveston to the south. the The gap between Bolivar Peninsula and Galveston Island is about two miles wide, and this is where the Corps of Engineers is talking about having a flood control gate, as you said, a two part gate, uh, some sort of uh, swing gate over the 55 foot deep houston ship channel entrance that can open and close and then this other sort of gated structure a little bit like the bonnie Carey spillway i think it reminds me of in over on the mississippi river but uh huge huge project um and the state both at the core galveston district the general land office uh, and the folks locally in the Harris County, Houston, Galveston area, right, have been making these trips to Mecca. I kind of think of it as coastal engineering Mecca. They've been going to New, uh, to the Netherlands, meeting with the officials there. Uh, when you went and, and you're from the Houston area, worked at the Houston Chronicle, does it seem like the right place to go for that? What was your sense? Are we is this place worthy of of sort of this position we've put it on in the discussion of Texas shore protection or, or Galveston Bay shore protection? Well, no one has died there from a flood in sixty six years, so they're c- clearly doing something right. Um, you mentioned the you know the port and the opening between Bolivar and Galveston. The two-gate system they're now looking at looks very similar to the Mazatlan barrier in the Netherlands, which guards the port of Rotterdam, which is the busiest port in Europe. Right. Um, and so, you know, there it is comparable um, in a lot of ways, and um, you know, it can be applied to to the Texas coast. I think there are big differences. Um, uh, namely, we get hurricanes, and the Dutch do not get hurricanes. Um, and there's some disagreement about how much that matters, um, but certainly hurricanes have um, 
fast and furious storm surge. It's very high. It's quick. Um, the storm surge from the North Sea storms in the Netherlands are... Um, they last longer, so they have a bigger potential of eroding levees over time, but they're lower. And so, you know, you talk to Merrill and he says it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But, you know, other people say I talked to Bruce Ebersole, who's a former Army Corps um, engineer uh, with the Mississippi District. Um, and he's working with Merrill and all of that. And he said um, it does make a difference. You have to design levees higher, um, you know, here and a hundred year storm here is probably more intense than it is in the in the Netherlands and they like to say 10,000 year storm that's kind of their their design standard for the coastal um, barriers anyway and so it's like what is that here a 500 year storm or his point is that it's hard to compare and that if you were to take the system in the Netherlands and apply it to Texas it wouldn't offer um, a similar level of protection it would offer a lower level of protection which is um, pretty interesting but you know everyone countries all over the world are looking to the Dutch for um, advice as they you know face sea level rise and climate change and you know it can be applied um, there are people who um, think that the Dutch are have been irresponsible and trying to export this system that they have um, Without realizing that, you know, government and, you know, there are huge differences in government and society and culture in other places, including the United States is incredibly different. Um, it's a national issue there. Flooding is a national issue. It's a third of the country that's below sea level. Um, it would flood massively if they didn't have this massive system. Yeah. So. Well, it's it's I think that one thing's for certain. They have invested over what, hundreds of years um, I, you, I can't calculate or even offer a, a, an amount of money and, and brain investment in managing water and flooding that it's worth studying them just for because they have done that. Now, where I think <clears throat> what's interesting is I do see uh, fingerprints of Dutch of the trends that I'm seeing in, in the Netherlands uh, all over the place. When we were in the San Francisco uh, in San Francisco for the International Ocean Film Festival, we spoke with the San Francisco port director, and her proposal was because the old seawall that uh, protects the bay, the the San Francisco, the city of San Francisco from the bay, uh, is super old and needs to be replaced and built up. And she's like, hey. Maybe we'll build this wall and then over the wall and outside of the wall will be natural g green stuff. Well, that's what that's what we're seeing in the Netherlands. Um, one of the things, though, that is very different. Well, and I also want to say that the idea that protect everyone is really that's really smart. And they, that's like they've had that from the very beginning. And that kind of makes the well, it's a 10,000 thing because we're we're protecting everybody, everybody. And it's going to cost a lot because we're protecting everybody. They're not going to run into the political decision of uh oh, your your house is on the wrong side of the thing. Like that is not that is a non-starter. They're going to spend the money to make sure everyone's protected. Um, which then will necessitate certain building codes and keeping people away from high I mean, it just changes the whole calculation that we haven't had. So the question is, and this is my question, can we intercept that? I mean, just say in the Houston-Galveston area, uh, let alone nationally, because uh, as Kelly Burks-Copes told us, this project is being used as almost a bellwether, a, 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 a 
pilot to, to, you know, it's being studied by New York and Boston and everyone. So, you know, can we intercept that Dutch uh, protect everyone philosophy or is it going to be, is that, and is that necessary? What do you think? I think there are big, so the question of whether we can copy the engineering and all of that, yeah, I think, of course we can. We can, you know, emulate it, whether we'll build to protect a 10,000-year storm, probably not, you know, as listeners probably know, a 100-year storm is the design standard generally in the U.S. It's uh, what they protected New Orleans to, and of course they're now having to, um, the Army Corps is now looking at revising those levees and revamping them because sea level has risen more quickly than they thought. Um, so there's, you know, the engineering question, yes, we can probably emulate the engineering, but, you know, as I said, flooding is not a national issue here. And $32 billion, you know, is a lot of money. And how are you going to convince a congressman from Kansas that, you know, Texas really needs this absent a Hurricane Katrina-like thing. We have a very um, reactive system. And, you know, it should be said that the Dutch, after that 1953 flood, it took a disaster for them to get get their act together. Um, but it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's our system of government. They've been dealing with, you know, the first dikes were built there in the early Middle Ages. And shortly after that, water boards were created um, because neighbors were flooding each other, farmers were flooding each other accidentally. Water boards were founded to, um, you know, work out those disputes. Um, and they're taxing entities. They're the earliest um, democratically elected yeah. bodies in the Netherlands, if not Europe. And so the Netherlands has had funding, a funding stream for flood control for centuries. And they, they're very well funded. They have a very low risk tolerance because they have so much to lose. It's just not that way here. Um, we don't, um, people are insured. There isn't flood insurance <laughs> in the Netherlands because they're so well protected behind these Everyone's storm surge protected. barriers. You pay taxes. Everyone's protected. Yeah. So it's just a very different cultural um, system. There are a lot of a lot of differences. So yeah, we might be able to copy the engineering, but whether we'll be able to fund it in one fell swoop and really get this done is a big, big question. And even, you know, Army Corps officials, uh, you know, Kelly Berkscope said um, this is probably so it's it's 2035 is the earliest that this will happen. And even she said that's a very ideal best case scenario. We'll probably get incremental funding for this. Um a few billion dollars here and there, maybe after hurricanes. Um, and people really fear, and I've feared for years, that it will take a really bad storm for this to be funded. And local officials there were really hopeful that Hurricane Harvey would provide uh, the political impetus to fund this project. But it wasn't ready. It wasn't eligible for funding because the plan hadn't been completed. So instead, Congress gave Texas uh, about $4 billion to complete another section of the coastal um, protection system that they envision. Um, and that's not part of the $32 billion, which right. covers um, $32 billion is the coastwide, almost coastwide um, price tag. So that includes habitat restoration near South Padre, all of that. The coastal barrier system near Houston Galveston makes up a majority of that. It's like $20 million, right. or billion, I'm sorry, $20 billion, uh, with the barrier gates making up about $17 billion of that. So that's it's the most expensive part of it. I'm going to read a sentence from the report because it's a sentence that I've 
never read a report of this type, but it's on the topic. I said, this is what you said in the report. Wouldn't it be nice? I love that beginning of that sentence. Wouldn't it be nice if a municipality like North Topsail Beach could stop spending all of their time, energy, administrative hours, and money on 7% of the tax base and turn all of those resources loose on the 93% of the tax base that will be much more sustainable over the next 30 years. I love that sentence. It would be nice, Rob. I think there's something here. And, and, it, and you know, it, I think if you were looking for a community where a buyout uh, is rational and prudent and would uh, create greater benefits to the broader public, both in the community and visitors to the town, uh, you know, this is it, and it's because of that inlet and because of its dynamic nature and and the futility of these these damn geotextile bags. And, well, uh, and can I, can man, I pile onto this, too, yeah, Rob? Yeah, jump on. <clears throat> you know, what I think here is an important consideration is that, you know, these were, these were platted out development areas that uh, people were given permission to develop. And um, the community, I, I think that it's important. And not that long ago. It, not that long ago. I mean, the town was founded in the 70s, 1970s, right, really? Rob? Is that right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, so it, it hasn't been a terribly long time. But my point is, is, is that we make mistakes. And I think that it is okay and we should be encouraging local government leaders to account for, especially in coastlines. I mean, we see this everywhere. Uh, you've got submerged parcels <laughs> and in South Padre Island, Texas. I mean, they were, they platted that island out like it was a, a suburb subdivision. And um, that, A, that doesn't fit the modern expectation of proper coastal development it doesn't it doesn't fit the expectation of how to most economically uh extract the extract the highest and best use for the area either but you know in the case of your study area rob i i just i really do think that man there was a mistake made uh in clearly you look at the pictures you look at i mean this should not be like this uh now what you're proposing is rather than pump uh, the money into beach renourishment, armament, et cetera, et cetera, over the next, you know, foreseeable planning horizon, that we'd be better served uh, erasing that area. And of course, there would still need to be some sort of management for the area. It would be a park space or put you in your report, you say, hey, put it into conservation, put it into some sort of local park, some sort of, uh, so it will continue to serve a public purpose, presumably. Um, but I do think I, th I, I think guess that I, I would say I would say we would make it a beach again. Yeah, sure. But my point is is that we this is a tool that should be in the toolkit for local governments. Uh, mistakes are made, uh, poor decisions are made, or decisions are made without complete information. Uh, local leaders do the best they can with the information they have in the in the period that they're serving. And as decades roll by, uh, oftentimes not even very many of them, the picture changes. And um, I was very curious. I, I'm sure you saw, Rob, the Coastal Review online 
uh, article where they had the mayor quoted. And uh, he took quite a bit of exemption to your study, Rob. Yes. Yeah, the the mayor was not particularly happy. And in in all honesty, I understand some of his frustration. Um, You know, we intentionally did not engage town leadership in this particular study. We wanted to sort of do it as an academic study from 10,000 feet. Um, And so, you know, I understand the, you know, the consternation that those folks have in having this just be dropped in their lap. And I get that. And, you know, I feel a little bit bad about that, but that's the way that we've decided to proceed with the case studies that we're doing. Um, And, you know, I think that you know, the the mayor and I are going to continue to disagree on a couple of issues, um, it, you know, including this one. Um, but you know, my audience is not just town leadership. But my audience is all the property owners and citizens in North Topsail Beach, and you know, we have been contacted by a few of those oceanfront property owners in the targeted buyout area, they preferred not to be identified, but the ones who contacted us, contacted us because they were actually interested in the proposal. And many of those properties have been uh, losing value, not gaining value over time. And uh, I think that there are folks there, if they could be satisfactorily made whole or regain a reasonable portion of their investment, that you know, are more than ready to you know, walk away and buy someplace else, maybe even stay within North Topsail Beach, within that municipality. Right. But you can imagine the frustration that some of these property owners have had, especially some who have purchased more recently, when you know, they don't really have that beautiful recreational beach that they'd always hoped to have with their beach home. And, no. and you know, the, so the main question here is, what, what do you do about that? And um, certainly, continued engineering is one option, and it's the option that most communities explore um, for a wide variety of reasons, including the fact that that's what most coastal engineering firms do for a living. So why would they advise you to do anything else? Um, but we just wish that an analysis that is sort of on par with what we've done here would also be included and really thought of seriously at the municipal level and the county level when thinking about how to manage our shorelines for the next 30 years. And I think it's pretty clear if you look at our study, we've been very conservative in how we have um, crunched the numbers. Uh, you know, we, we've even assumed that the properties in North Topsail Beach are going to continue to increase in value over the next 30 years and that they will all be there 30 years from now, which is, I think, yeah. probably not the generous. case. <laughs> A generous um, assumption. But let, let me let, let's talk about the study re- analysis here, Rob. And, good idea. And the vul- what you developed, it sounds like, is a vulnerability assessment protocol. And it sounds like the purpose of this exercise is to assess the economic, I don't know, the economic viability uh, of, of approaching this shoreline problem um, in a different way. Can you tell us about the vulnerability assessment protocol and 
And it really seems this is where the rubber meets the road between your view and that of the mayor is the economic feasibility of this. Walk us through the study approach and the protocol that you developed. Well, there's two stages to the to the case study as we've conducted it. We you know we wanted to start with a scientific evaluation of where the real exposure to hazards was for the island and for these properties. So we didn't want to just pick a bunch of properties without a scientific basis for recommending the buyout. So what we've utilized is a vulnerability assessment protocol that we have developed over the last five years for the Department of Interior and the National Park Service. So this is a well-vetted protocol that we have been utilizing across the country to examine building by building exposure, sensitivity, and vulnerability to coastal hazards in all national parks, uh, coastal national parks in the U.S. So, you know, everything from the Statue of Liberty to an outhouse in the Everglades. And in North Carolina, we've done Cape Hatteras and we've done Cape Lookout. So the this protocol has been scientifically vetted. And what's unique about it is that it's it's an, a building by building, road by road scoring of exposure and vulnerability. It's not just making another map. So so we start with examining uh, the the exposure of structures in North Topsail Beach on the north end using this uh, protocol that we've developed for the National Park Service. And at the end of the day, we then develop a list of those oceanfront properties, those properties that are in every single one of our hazard categories from um, the state's inlet hazard area to long-term shoreline erosion, storm surge, sea overrides all of them. And so, you know, we're really talking about the most exposed individual properties on the island, on Topsail Island. And uh, those end up in the targeted uh, acquisition list. Now, we've added a few that might be, that were just outside of that highest vulnerability list for practical reasons. There are a few properties that are set back a little bit so that they're just outside the coastal erosion buffer, um, but might be sitting in between a couple of properties that are highly ranked as highly exposed. So in order to make the buyout area contiguous, we've added a few properties that gets us up to 340-some properties. Some of these properties are you know, underwater parcels that have basically no value and are paying like a dollar in taxes a year, $10, I can't remember, whatever the minimum is. So that's, you know, we start with this very scientific approach to developing the properties that we want to target in the buyout. And then we simply crunch the numbers. We use North Topsail Beach's cost estimates for shoreline protection over the next 30 years. And we compare that to the taxes that those oceanfront properties in our targeted acquisition area would be paying over 30 years. And that's property taxes. We look at taxes from rentals and you know all of that analysis to 
look at what would be lost if those properties were not there, what would be lost in revenue to the municipality and to the county, and then we look at what the costs are to holding them in place. And by our very conservative analysis, where, like I said, we assume that every single one of those properties is still gonna be there 30 years from now, and I'm pretty dubious about that, Um, and we also assume that they're gonna continue to appreciate and value over that period of time. Uh, It's basically, you know, it's close to $3 million cheaper to buy them over this 30 year period than it would be to do protection. And the main thing that we also try and point out in the report is that there are so many unquantifiable benefits to carrying out this proposal uh, that are also really important. And, you know, that's like, as we spoke of before, transfer of amenity values. So if all of a sudden you have a more natural beach at that end of the island that all the other property owners can use, that increases everybody's rental rates and property values. Um, The lack of expenditures for emergency management, we had no way of estimating the consulting engineering fees that are required for doing all of this project development. There are a whole bunch of other ways that the costs of the buyout are offset with benefits that are difficult to quantify. And, And that's not even discussing any of the potential environmental benefits to getting all of those sandbags out of the water. We are so pleased to have with us on the American Shoreline podcast, Michael Asaro, the the uh, branch chief for the Marine Mammal and Sea Turtle Branch at NOAA Fisheries. Uh, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast, uh, Dr. Asaro, and I think we can call you Michael. Yep, sounds good. Thank you both for having me. The North Atlantic right whale population uh, as we have heard is quite low and quite precarious. Um, tell us about that population as as uh, Noah understands it right now. What's the status of the right whale population on the Atlantic shoreline? The right whales, there are about 400 right whales remaining in the population. And these are, these are large filter feeding baleen whales. So picture a whale the size of a school bus or larger. And they're one of the largest things in the Atlantic Ocean, and they survive by feeding on one of the smallest things, the species of copepod called Calinus finmarchicus or copepods. They, um, they are filter feeding up and down the coast throughout their range, and they have no known uh, threats in their natural environment. The only impediment to their recovery is human interactions, things like ship strikes and entanglements. Right whales spend the vast majority of their time in the mid-Atlantic up into the Gulf of Maine region off of the U.S. In the summertime, a portion of the population goes up into Canadian waters in the Gulf of St. Lawrence to feed, and a portion of the population in the winter also goes down to the coast of Florida and Georgia to give birth. Pregnant females and also uh, some additional females or males that go along for the ride can be seen off the southeast U.S. But by and large, they're found in the Gulf of Maine and in the southern New England area and uh, increasingly so in the mid-Atlantic as well. Hmm. So what percentage of time do they spend in these uh, in, in, in the Gulf of Maine versus their uh, migratory patterns down to the southern Atlantic shoreline down to Florida? Well, it's hard to know. So we, 
you may see in some places a reference to a right whale migration. It was once thought that there was kind of a, a unified movement of whales throughout the Atlantic Ocean uh, corresponding with, with the months of the year. And the more we learn about right whales, the less confident we are in, in that type of hmm. a migratory route. What we really know now is right whales are pretty much distributed throughout their range, based primarily in the Gulf of Maine for most of the year. And dispersed in as individuals or pairs throughout their range, uh, feeding and exhibiting other social behavior with each other. But in certain times of the year, in certain places, they come together in big aggregations for uh, feeding and mating and things like that. Okay. An example of that is in the Cape Cod Bay in April into May. We can see anywhere up to 200 right whales or more inside Cape Cod Bay. So approaching hmm. you know half or more of the entire population. Hmm. In the summer, in the summer, for example, we've seen about 140 unique individuals up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So, you know, over a quarter of the population up feeding in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in dense aggregations. We and had a, a steady aggregation south of Nantucket, for example, throughout most of this year that has gone up to 100 whales as it did last winter and down to about five whales, but a consistent feeding and social aggregation down south of islands. So they're really throughout most of their range. They come together to aggregate from time to time in certain places, but they're pretty dispersed widely throughout their range for most of the year. Hmm. And the other thing that's unique, I, I don't know if this is unique compared to all other uh, species of whale, but this is a coastal animal. It, these are not typically found in the, out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Is that right? Are they typically a nearshore animal or what can you tell us about that? For most of their time, there are exceptions, some interesting exceptions, in fact. So most of the time, they are near shore, on the continental shelf, in, in around areas close to shore. And uh, Scott Krause, a researcher who focused uh, on right whales for a long time at the New England Aquarium and colleagues, they, they refer to the right whale as the urban whale because it spends a lot of its time in... Uh, in coastal areas where high human use is happening, in a urban ocean environment, so to speak. Hmm. But however, you know, there's some historic evidence that right whales, when their population was in greater numbers, could be found up through you know, Iceland and Greenland and you know, Norway, even some some whaling remains and other kind of fossil and bone evidence can is shown that right whales have been through there as well. And there actually is a unique individual that we see from time to time swimming off the coast of Iceland. Hmm. And earlier this uh, spring, a uh, right whale was observed feeding off the coast of France. Wow. So we... Okay. There's a lot we know about this species, but there's still a lot we don't know. And it, it, uh, it continues to surprise us in the behavior it exhibits and, and where and when we find it. Well, this will not be the first time on this show that we compliment the uh, scientific uh, research that y'all do over at NOAA Fisheries and just the outstanding pursuit of understanding that is happening here. Uh, these are mysterious creatures, and we do not know a lot, and uh, it's just great to hear it. I'm curious to know, what's the lifespan of a whale? How many years do they live, and uh, what's the gestation period like for uh, a female to reproduce? So for uh, on on reproduction first, so a female will start reproducing at age 10, and she'll have a calf, She'll the gestation period is about a year long, and then given how uh, energy intensive the reproduction process is, she'll probably 
need at least three years of recovery to replenish her uh, blubber store before she's fit enough to reproduce again. Wow. The trouble here is because females lose so much blubber in, in transferring that energy to their calf through lactation, she is in a pretty highly compromised state once she finishes lactation and the calf becomes independent. So what we see with right whales is the females are uh, die much more frequently and suffer more serious injuries from things like uh, sublethal entanglement. So entanglement that happen and cause injuries but don't acutely kill a whale. Uh, females have a hard time, harder time overcoming those injuries and recovering from them so that the population at this point has lost many more females than men, hmm. than males, and it now has about 40% of females overall. Well, that is, uh, if I might, that this was kind of an astonishing uh, fact that I uh, gathered in reviewing materials that you have produced on this population is an overall number around 400, which is incredibly low, but that the number of breeding females, what, was it 95 is the estimate? It is. So that's looking at the, the females in the population and then subtracting out the ones who haven't yet reached sexual maturity to 10 years of age. So what you're left is about 95 females who are reproductively capable, whose job it is to sustain the entire population. And that's okay. They're, they, they can do that with, and they should be able to do that with what we what we expect would be a three-year kind of recovery period between calves, the, the calving interval. Uh, but as we've seen more cro chronic stress on the whales, the calving interval has increased over time from three years, what it should be, up to about 10 years between calves for wow. females. Since, since females are, since right whales are capital breeders, they don't, and they don't have any known uh, predators in the wild, they don't really need to um, reproduce except when their body tells them they're fit to do so. So, so stressors on on whales, females in particular. What what's going to what we'd expect to happen in a stressed population is they would they would not be reproducing because their bodies aren't fit enough to do so. Hmm. So, a change in the breeding frequency from three years, which is sort of the normal natural capacity of this species to 10 years, that's a tremendous loss of reproductive potential in the population, isn't it? It is, and, then, and to get to your first question about longevity, we would, there's no reason to think that a right whale couldn't live to 100 years of age. Other species like southern right whales or cousins like bowhead whales can live to 100 or more. In fact, there was a bowhead that, that uh, was determined to have died at over 200 years old. So these wow. whales should be long-lived. The problem is the longer you're alive, the greater your probability is of being killed over your lifespan, <laughs> either from an entanglement or a ship strike. So right whales, as it turns out, don't live that long because they are killed for, uh, for various reasons before they're able to reach old age. So a female, on average, lives to about 45 years, and a male, on average, lives to a little over 60 years. So far, far longer lifespan than they should. And then when you combine that with what we just talked about, the, the, the calving interval, mm -hmm. if a female reaches maturity at age 10, yep. and now her calving interval is every 10 years, and, she's, and she'll die at about 45, that only enables her to produce three, maybe four calves in her lifespan, which if we spread that across the population, it's far too few calves to sustain the, 
the human-caused losses that we've seen. We had on Dr. Rosaro from the take reduction team at NOAA earlier, and today we're going to talk to Patrice McCarran, the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's talk about the process that is involved here in setting up the uh, governing rules and regulations of the fishery for the protection of the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, as I, as you know, we had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Michael Asaro at NOAA Fisheries, who uh, sort of leads the take reduction team, it's called. And I'm what I've learned, and, I, and I'm interested in, the Maine Lobster uh, Association has been a participant in the efforts by uh, the federal government and by the Northeast uh, states to protect this whale species for many years. Can you sort of reel back in time a little bit and tell us when the association became engaged in the issue and help our audience understand what the uh, lobstermen have done up till now to help protect these whales? Sure. Um, National Marine Fisheries Service um, first formed the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team. Um, I think the initial organizing meetings took place in 1995. Um, my predecessor, Pat White, um, was the representative for the Maine Lobstermen's Association um, on the TRT at its inception. I've been involved with that process um, since since I've been with the association since 2000. Um, the first right whale take reduction plan, or Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Plan, came into being in 1997. At that point in time, um, federal scientists estimated that there were less than 300 right, right whales, um, somewhere in the 290s. Um, so the species was certainly at a very critical point then. The plan has evolved over the last 20 years um, in its early phases. Um, there was a lot of effort in Massachusetts where literally half the population of right whales will congregate in Cape Cod Bay um, and feed, um, and they had some overlap with an active fishery there. So some of the more stringent measures of the early plan were really focused on that critical habitat and the interaction between that gear and whales. Um, but for the rest of us, we started modifying our gear in the 90s. Um, 1997, we added weak links um, below the buoy on the vertical line. So if a whale did encounter the line, the strain on the line would allow the buoy to pop off. And the theory is that the rope would then um, just come cleanly through the baleen and the whale would be able to swim away um, unharmed. The other significant thing that we did then is we stopped fishing floating line up to the buoy so that at slack tide or if there were a lot of scope on the line itself, there would never be any line laying on the surface of the ocean. Ocean. So if a whale came through transiting or feeding, that would be very easy rope for the whale to get tangled in. Uh, and we also um, started to minimize the, the knots in splices, how we're connecting the rope itself. So, you know, rope breaks a lot. Guys need to do a lot of work on the water. So we do encourage um, rope splicing, um, gear work over the winter, rather than having large knots that could potentially get caught up in the baleen. 
in about 2000, um, we started to mark our ropes. So the Northeast region, which is all trap pot fisheries, Maine, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire together, um, we started marking our vertical lines with a red marker. Um, that evolved in the early 2000s. In about 2002, um, the federal agency implemented something called dynamic area management. And if they sighted three or more right whales in a particular area, they imposed actually a very massive dynamic closure. Um, fishermen had two weeks to remove their gear um, and get it to shore. And that program was very difficult um, for fishermen because Typically, they would interact with whales in the fall. Um, rough weather windows, um, like I said at the beginning, we have fairly small boats. You can't fit that many traps safely in bad weather on a boat to actually move them out. And what happened in reality was oftentimes by the time the gear was actually being physically removed from the area, the whales had, had long gone. Um, so that program was ultimately peeled away, um, and in 2008, um, we went to fishing sinking line between our traps on bottom. So we removed the line between traps that would float in the water column. Um, that was a very difficult program for me, and it actually was initiated in Massachusetts in Cape Cod Bay, where the right whales had aggregated. That is a fairly shallow area, a sandy bottom, soft bottom area, um, where it's not a problem to just sink your ground lines and have them sitting on the bottom, but when you come up to Maine, um, we have a very rocky, boulder-laden coast, a lot of ledge. Um, when you get to Eastern Maine, bottom currents will easily rip five knots on the bottom. Um, we have, you know, ever-increasing tides as you head east, so um, fishing sinking ground lines was, was a real safety and economic challenge for our fishermen because mm. the rope just hangs down under the rocks, and it was very difficult to actually get the gear back. Um, if your gear parted off, you could no longer see a length of floating line um, on your boat computer, um, so it's also very hard to go back and grapple that gear because the, the gear sort of lost um, on the bottom. So that was challenging, um, but nevertheless, we implemented that, and um, we removed about 27,000 27, miles of floating ground lines with line that sinks, so wow. we removed a significant amount of rope from the water. And then our final action was in 2014. Um, so the, the federal government essentially said, you have effectively addressed the risk of ground lines from your gear. Now we need to address the risk of vertical lines. And so Maine's plan was to require more traps on each vertical line. So we call that traps on a trawl. And essentially, the further from shore you fish, the more aggressively you needed to address that issue. So um, if you were fishing in federal waters, say 12 miles from shore, you might be required to have 15 traps on a trawl. The closer you were to shore, it might be five traps on a trawl or three traps on a trawl, depending on where you were. And we removed another 3,000 miles of uh, vertical lines through that action. And in addition to that, we expanded um, the size of the gear marking on our rope and the frequency of gear marking on our rope. So we now have a 12-inch red marker at the top of the buoy line and the center of the buoy line and at the bottom of the buoy line. So... Um, 
Yeah, comprehensively, that's what we've done. I think it's important to note that while this plan was coming online, um, so we had roughly 290, 295 right whales in 1997 when the plan started, um, the federal government said we had about 458 right whales um, in 2015. So the right whale population did um, slowly increase and rebound, and it's really only been in the last handful of years that there's been a very strong concern about the actual decline in right whales. But um, the population is still roughly around 400, so you know, by any standard, we have certainly remained ahead of where we started back in the 90s when the whale population was much lower than it is now. Well, that does sound like a considerable effort on the part of the Maine Lobstermen's Association this, and, and others in the Northeast, both the, the states and within this fishery and others. Uh, a lot of work, many years invested, and as you said, uh, the population at the time that this all started was around 295. It reached a peak of 458. And looking at the data that Noah provided to us, it seems that since about 2000, there's been a slow but steady decline in the population down to, as you said, about 400 over the last 15 to 20 year period here. And and how concerning is that um, to the lobstermen? Is that decline uh, uh, something that that confronts that stewardship ethic that you spoke about that I know these lobstermen have? Are, uh, they must be worried about this decline after all of this effort. Sure. Just to clarify, uh, the, the most recent federal modeling are showing that the decline actually started in 2010, not 2000, um, which is a big difference. Okay. Um, but yes, lobstermen are, are, of course, extremely concerned about the survival of right whales. Um, you know, these are people who literally depend on the ocean remaining healthy and robust and, you know, the ecosystems remaining intact for their livelihood. Um, they are people who are literally in awe, you know, when they have the opportunity to see these species. Right whales happen to be extremely rare in Maine. Um, there are few and far between of lobstermen who have ever actually seen a right whale. Um, and in fact, since 2010, the distribution of right whales sort of coinciding with the actual decline in the population, the distribution of the whales themselves has have shifted dramatically. And something, um, you know, climactically, something in the environment, something in the Gulf of Maine has had a significant change. Um, the food source for right whales is really not present and abundant at the same time and place that it traditionally was. Um, so the most recent data has shown that whales continue to be most active in Cape Cod Bay. Um, their new northern feeding ground is now the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Right. And based on all of the sightings and acoustic data, um, scientists have documented that the presence of right whales along the coast of Maine has actually declined significantly since hmm. 2010. So that's part of what makes this issue so incredibly difficult for Maine lobstermen. You know, we know we fish rope. Um, we know rope is dangerous for whales. They certainly have the ability to get entangled in it. 
Um, you know, most people believe that right whales are transiting really much further offshore of the coast of Maine um, along the shelf waters and not close to the shore where the majority of our fishery is prosecuted. So, you know, we're in a situation where we have very, very few whales and an abundance of gear. Hmm. Um, and so the question is, you know, what can we effectively do that is going to help the right whales recover and sort of fundamentally, um, a whale needs to be present for it to have the potential to get entangled. And, you know, that probability is becoming less and less. So we don't want to, you know, have closures in the fishery or remove gear in the fishery if a whale's never going to be there. Um, that's an economic harm that sure. is entirely unnecessary and is not going to help the species recover. Hmm. But, but in the portion of our fishery where that probability is higher, um, you know, we are definitely committed to taking those actions and, and hope that those measures will, in fact, help right whales. Well, uh, Dr. Haig, let's talk about politics a little bit here. Uh, there is the universe of, of communities that can act, that have the agency to act, a company, PG&E, an oil company, that kind of thing, uh, organizations that can act because they control their own leadership. And this policy realm uh, of enacting new laws or restrictions on development or you know, all of the kinds of things that can happen in coastal communities around the American shoreline. Uh, politics is a uniquely different environment uh, because of the election elect that everybody who's going to make the choices are elected, uh, which means they're tied a bit to the sentiment of the community on this issue. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in many communities, the acceptance of this uh, phenomenon and whether it is actually occurring is still not completely uh, resolved. Um, when when you're doing scenarios, how does how does the political decision making how do you handle something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. The political um, the administration, which administration, which type of administration is going to be in at the time of our time horizon, whether it be ten years out or fifteen or twenty twenty five years out, uh, that is always a very uncertain thing. There are a couple of... The good thing is you're not just looking at policy change by itself. You're looking at it in relation to other key drivers. And those other key drivers will help put it into perspective somewhat. Just on the policy piece, though, you know, one thing... A couple of things that I think are... are, happening. First of all, constituencies are changing. Not, It might be slow in, in some areas, but if you look at the youth movements, the Greta Thunberg's movements, movement um, or at the moment, it's obvious that you have a very different view of climate changes, some mm-hmm. of the people in older generations. And you know what? They're going to be voting yeah. in really now or a very short period of time and so that is going to drive change in constituencies and that will change drive uh, sorry that will drive changes uh, among the mix of elected representatives and so yeah so that's it going it'll happen the other thing that happens is people will Uh, connect local conditions to climate change when they are surprised by, well, by things like 
a surprising extreme weather event by close calls. Whenever they're surprised by climate change, it forces the question of, oh, is this related to climate change? Is this what climate change looks like in our community? And I found in my own research that when climate change hits closer to home, when it uh, makes me, when, when it makes people question Will things return to what I think is normal or are we entering a new normal? When you get to those types of questions and your cha- your your assumptions are severely challenged, then it, it opens a crack for people yeah. to change their lives. So that's really important. You know, it happened here in Boston. Um, the only reason that I mean, yes, we are further up the coast than New York, but if you think about Superstorm Superstorm Sandy, had devastating effects on parts of New York City and other parts, and and obviously other parts of, of, of other states. And when it came up to Boston, yes, it was a little older of a storm, but the main reason that we didn't get severe flooding in Boston from that storm was because it hit at low tide. You know, well, just that lucky. was a near miss. That was a near miss for Boston. Yeah. And considering that there are parts of Boston that already flood on a king tide, um, I mean, if, he, if if Sandy had hit Boston on a high tide or, my goodness, a, a king tide, yeah. we would have been facing the same types of very severe flooding impacts. You know, I like to say on this topic that reality is a persistent teacher and it will continue to remind you of what's going on until you get. <laughs> you get the message. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and but I think you're quite right that that personal experience is what changes it. There was something that's happened, been happening this week in Florida that is really notable and jumped out at us on Coastal News today. And that is the Florida GOP uh, held a meeting and a conference of, of legislators who who spoke directly to climate change and directly to sea level rise. And as a party, the governor there, Governor DeSantis, who's elected conservative Republican, has a climate resiliency cabinet level position now. He's replaced everybody on the South Florida Water uh, Water Management District Board to make them more sensitive to water quality and harmful algal blooms, which is a climate driven, a temperature related nutrient level uh, deal, but we're starting to see that crack that you're talking about. That the that the reality of of the risks to the state of Florida is overcoming whatever political resistance has been built into the system. Are you expecting that mm-hmm. to continue around the country, and do you see that in other places? You know, I I would expect it to keep. You know, to it, it will. I I think that crack will keep opening up as long as we keep feeling the effects. And if we look at greenhouse gas emissions and atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gas emissions where we're already the science tells us that we're locked in for a yeah. while into the future for at least a century into the future in terms of change so i would expect those things you know to to that progress to keep happening and i would hope that it would you know when youth are able to vote i mentioned this before when they're able to vote they will force the issue as well and it's not only in their ability to vote it's in the, the careers they choose to pursue it's in this when they start making uh, becoming more senior in their careers earning more money having more purchasing power what do they choose to do you know what do they, what are they choosing to purchase what types of products what right. types of homes and where are they 
Let me ask you about your students. Uh, I'm, I really want to ask about whether you are an optimist in, in, when it comes to this issue. And how do your how do your students respond to this? And you, you talk to them about this issue, I assume, in the courses that you're teaching there at UMass Boston. Um, it, it, how are they feeling about this stuff? Is it generally that it's all going to hell and it's just horrible and we can't do it? Or is there an energy to to try to change it? What do you, what's the sentiment in the students? And what about you personally as a professional in this realm? How do you feel about the future on this topic? So my students, overwhelmingly, they start off with, whoa, <laughs> you know, I didn't, wow, that's stark. You know, and we're talking about various different drivers. We'll talk about sea level rise, extreme weather, temperature change, or social movements, all sorts of things. And so they start off with a surprise at the magnitude of the and the variety of issues. And but then we, you know, we move through the method and we they gain confidence that they can do something. And I have. I have comp- I have complete confidence that we can do it. You know that we can address climate change. My finding about companies uh, and people connecting local issues to climate change via what I call climatic surprise. The other side of that is once they've been surprised and once they've made the connection companies can move quickly. Hmm. We know that companies can move quickly. Some of them are big, some of them are bu- bureaucratic, but once they re- once they it is made the connection is made and they realize they can't negotiate with this. It, it it's it's it, it whatever the thing that needs to be done needs to be done, they will do it. Got yeah. I think you're right about that. Actually, and, and, and Tyler and I's experience in the past and working with coastal communities, say, on, we, we used to do this for a living, make special tax districts for shoreline investments for storm risk reduction. And, and it was this engagement with the community and going through a process where they ultimately, and I think often reluctantly, accepted the truth of what was happening, but that takes its own time. And then coming to a point where they've gathered themselves back up and decided, okay, this is a sensible step. This is the best option. It does make it better. Let's move forward. But so much of that process is an emotional process. It is so based on, it's not simply a matter of information. The information is typically available. They just uh, uh, not prepared to believe it or contend. Do you find that? Yeah, and this is really getting to what is what I see as being the heart of climate debates. You know, we have people, you know, we have climate people who understand climate change and accept the science and then as you mentioned before there are other people that are still questioning that. And then some people who are outright climate deniers. And really those positions are embedded in sets of values and emotions are directly connected to those sets of values. And so it is 
a very it can be a quite emotional issue especially if you've been quite vocal you know and you've 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 been very vocal about your position on any given issue it's the same ideological and value divide that we also see around other issues like abortion like trophy hunting you know those types of things there's a very similar ideological divide and so i think what we need to do is realize that and and actually i one of my mentors who's professor andrew hoffman at the university of michigan he has written um a few pieces and done done a really good piece of research on climate deniers and the climate debate generally and so what he suggests and what i teach people in my classes is a we have to realize that good democracies have good varieties of of views on any given topic and that don't that we try not to meet somebody at their position but try and appreciate their values where what values are those positions coming from and then you'll understand why you know why the emotions are coming up and once you i think you can meet them at their values you can understand what is important to them what they literally what they value and then rather than simply restating your own position you can relate to them in ways that um in language that makes sense to them in language they can connect to and then i think we might have taking these conversations forward fascinating stuff you know uh i'm gonna i'm indulge me peter i'm gonna so last night i was uh fixing dinner with my girlfriend we were making spring rolls and uh, Selena had bought all the stuff. Uh, Peter and I had just gotten back from a long road trip. And uh, so she had already bought the stuff and everything was set out. And she was making the roll, the spring rolls. And they were, they turned out beautifully. And at the end, she had like rolled them all up. They're all ready to go. And there was an avocado that just like never made it in. We just forgot it. It was, it was there. It was on the counter. We just somehow left it out of the mix. And so the spring rolls that we were committed to were without avocado and we got on just fine. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of this issue and in the, in the, uh, the connection I'm trying to make is that we have always known since we were kiddos and learned about, you know, the science of the origins of the earth from this like fireball and the moon kind of gets shot off at one point with there's a big impact and. I mean, the planet has changed. The environment has changed over time. And we all know that conservatives will even say that as a as a kind of counter argument to to climate change. Um, But we need to remember, I I think that what what we are coming to the the reckoning that we are coming to is that uh, man is now putting uh, his and her imprint on this changing planet and that even though that avocado has always been sitting there and we've always known that the planet is changing it's the rate of change it's the we've forgotten about it we have we've we've conveniently forgotten we've like blindfolded ourselves to this truth i love it it's true and and we we have we've forgotten about it and so it doesn't come up in our planning and in fact it doesn't come up in our in our emotional planning when we think about our lives and our story we don't part of our story is that hey you know maybe i'm going to go go back home like i'm from this beautiful little town maybe i'll live well maybe it might be a damn desert you know i've got to work that thing in and it, it it's hard i don't even want to acknowledge that it's painful to think about but 
um, this is what we are confronted with, you know, uh, and. I don't know. For maybe the avocado thing was stupid, but I have one last point, Peter. I got the. I like the avocado thing. Okay. Keep going. One, I like it too. Okay. <laughs> climate change is an avocado sitting on the counter. Yeah. We don't want to admit we should put it in. It needs we, to be in the we spring. We forgot roll. about it. It's got to be in. It. We've always known that change is is gonna happen, and it's just hard for us to see. And I do want to say that you know here here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, we're focused on ocean and coastal issues. And boy, is there there is no better community of professionals and stakeholders than beach people because where that this is where the, the beach the coast is almost synonymous with change it's where change happens the fastest it's where you can see it the the edge of of the land water interface is a an incredibly dynamic shifting sand type of place and uh that is what we we focus on and think about and i do think that there is a cultural component here where where uh, uh, those Maybe of you listening, receptive. yeah, Maybe. hey, we, we, I think we have something to contribute here in the broader conversation. There's a comfort level, a willingness to be comfortable with, with that avocado sitting there. Uh, we left it out, but you know what? It's going to be okay. We're going to find a way to move forward. So that's my avocado story. I'm going <laughs> to. I like that one. I got. I follow it. What about you, uh, Duck Hagley? <laughs> I think it's. I think it's a great one. <laughs> I would say when it comes to climate change, I agree. You know, those people in coastal communities are not unlike those Okanagan Valley farmers. You're they're close to the earth they're close to the water and they understand the interaction of the two and you know i think there is a lot of innovation that coastal people can contribute to adapting to climate change absolutely well ladies and gentlemen uh, dr nardia hag professor of management at umass boston author of a great book you can get it on amazon it's called scenario planning for climate change a guide for strategists uh closing thoughts dr hag what would what would, closing thoughts on the topic oh well, thank you so much for having me on it's it has been an absolute honor to speak with you i would i would you know i would just say to to everybody we quit um we have ways of of figuring this out it's a it's a large set multifaceted issues very large scale issues but ultimately they are local issues and the book i've developed will help people figure out what does it all mean for them and what should they do, what should they do and uh, you know to help build climate resilience into all communities especially coastal communities as you rightly said are at uh, you know they're really on the front lines well if people are interested in your consulting services or if they're interested in putting together a scenario for a city in town and i'll tell you i'm going to recommend it to the folks i know on the coast this is a great idea for coastal communities how do they get in touch with you how would they avail themselves to your services 
Thanks, sure. So anyone can find me at NadiaHaig.com. Um, the book is available on Amazon and Routledge websites. And uh, I also have an offer on my website where people can download a copy of the introduction in exchange for signing up for a newsletter that I usually send out every couple of months. Um, and they can they can get an overview of the, of the method themselves. Absolutely. I'd love to speak with anybody who's interested. Fantastic. Dr. Nadia Haig, H-A-I-G-H, you guys, when you're going to the website, Nardia is N-A-R-D-I-A. It is an important work. I am so happy uh, you uh, took the time to uh, join us on the American Shoreline podcast. And I think your message of optimism and the fact that we can do something about this is so important in moving forward. Uh, We can't give in to despair and discouragement on this issue. It can be tackled. And it's great to see people developing methodologies and approaches to bring this issue down to size and make it workable. So thanks a lot for doing the book. And I I have not completed reading it, but I intend to. And I really want to thank you for for joining us today. Singing, Mama, now, no 